0: Welcome. I'm Anna Marie Clifton, Product Manager at Yammer.
1: And I'm Sandy McPherson, founder at Quip.
0: And this is the Clearly Product Book Club Podcast.
1: Today we are going to talk about the most recent book that we read, which is called Winning with Data. Transform Your Culture, Empower Your People, and Shape the Future. Uh, it was released in 2016. It's written by Tomas Tungus and Frank Bien. Bien, I guess, yeah. Bien? Bien? I'm not sure story Frank. Tom is a partner at Redpoint and Frank is CEO of a company called Looker. One of the points that I wanted to raise that I thought was missing, I guess, from the book was a little bit around this idea of the power of having data to create the future that you want. For example, with Quib, basically, and he kind of goes into it a little bit. He gives an example of the Real Real, which I wasn't familiar Uh, with, but it's like an e-commerce site. And he talks about how every day, like at 4 p.m., they do some really targeted sales based on what inventory they have have and like they have developed a bunch of models to understand like how much they need to discount them by and mm. and so that i was like okay that's kind of what i'm talking about but in the case of quib for example one of th- the things that i did was i was able to figure out basically what my viral coefficient was and then i could map and understand how many invites i had to send every day to achieve growth rate x mm. and then i did that and so you can basically invent a future that you want. And as long as you have the data to understand how to create that future, mm. you can. Everybody's sort of like, oh, like, you don't, like, how are we going to get to this? And how are we huh. going to do that? Uh-huh. Where it's like, okay, actually, like, you can just, if you understand it well mm-hmm. enough, mm-hmm. you can just build the future that you want. Because then once I sort of had, once I knew, like, what triggers were needed to get to that sort of tipping point to get to, you know, seven, eight, 10% um, week over week growth. Mm-hmm. And I could be like, okay, that, that means that this many types of invites need to be sent. Mm-hmm. That means this many people need to be pinged to send mm-hmm. this type of invite and they mm-hmm. need at least this blah, 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 blah. And so I was able to sort of back out of, back out a calculation around, or a number um, that impacted what else had to be done to reach a goal. Mm-hmm. And so I found that he doesn't really go into that very much. Like he doesn't talk at all about like establishing a goal mm. and then using data to like basically build that future that you want hmm. and a lot of it is much more around just like generally we want this to go up or generally hmm. we kind of want that to happen and like let's look and understand and like test things but there was no definitive like this is the future we want how do we make it happen okay done hmm.
0: that's interesting I I mean I love that example I would not have thought about using data in that way to yeah. be like really prescriptive yeah. about growth specifically. Um, I'm wondering I mean so the viral coefficient fits in really well as um, like one particular way to like backfill or like um, deterministically um, identify like what to do in order to get to your future Mm -hmm. because there is like an established I mean it's basically it's a mathematical formula of like based on these number of users inviting X number of users that's how I like keep the growth rate going can you think of any other examples because that's something I mean even just thinking of that example is something that I hadn't done.
1: Sure. I mean, you could say if you had an understanding of like people in the network perform better if and when they have at least five connections, mm-hmm. then you could back out of that. Like, how do we get people to have five connections? Oh, they need to have at least 15 people ask mm, them to I be see. connected. And then you just go down the chain basically to create the initial instances of actions right. that will lead to the trickle down. And you just need enough data to like, and again, for me, like it was never like 99.9% like my level of statistical significance was never like good, mm-hmm. but it was
0: like, you know, it was good enough right. and that, to, like, to do it. Exactly. We actually, I mean, as you put it that way, we do a lot of that at Yammer mm-hmm. actually, where um, we have an, analysis, like, uh, an analyst team that does exploratory analysis around things like that. Mm-hmm. And then helps us drive on um, the product side what features would we want to develop in order to get users to that state. So like sure. we segment out and we like do a lot of regressions and figure out like what is it that as best as we can control for makes users successful mm-hmm. in various ways. And then we run experiments to try and prove causally that like if users do these things, they will actually be successful. Because a lot of this is like understanding things backwards is very like correlative and doesn't necessarily um, indicate that it, it will on average make you more right than not. Mm-hmm. And that's the idea. Um, but then if you you are also in a place where you like have a plethora of like users to test things on you can go backwards to try and identify what you think is strongest mm-hmm. and then go forwards and test that thing. Yep. So I've done that in a couple instances here already, and I'm working on a couple things as well, upcoming in search where we've like identified various things that like the analyst team has done free exploration on, and then now we're taking those ideas and saying, oh, okay, well, like given this expectation that if users do X, Y, and Z within their first week, then they're significantly more successful. Right. And we've, you know, our, our analysts have been controlling for a lot of things as they try and like dig down to like, is that actually what it is, or is it just mm-hmm. users in particular networks who do that? Blah blah. blah mm-hmm. You know. So then it's up to the PMS. To to take those ideas and say okay let's like develop a test around artificially getting users into that state and seeing if that state in and of itself is what drives good behavior or if it's like those users who are gonna get in that state we're gonna be good users anyway yeah, right, right. right so like that's something that we do a lot of work here which well
1: I just want to say one yeah. thing too around that again like the big company versus small thing where and I think it was a previous point also about mm-hmm. how you might not have data and you can still do that mm-hmm. so for example with Quib it was like okay I believe strongly that if someone shares content on the network they will have an experience that will lead them to be more likely to return and engage with the product again mm-hmm. and so I made it like your very first tooltip when you sign up to Quib or not tool tip, there's like a module at the top of the feed that's like share a link and it's like, I put that there because, and this was like, literally, it was like 40 people. Like there was right. nobody using it and I couldn't test it. Right. But it was one of these things where I knew that probably it would have a positive impact. Right. And I was nowhere near the point of being able to test that and n- waiting until I had the time to test that probably would have meant I would have had to have waited so long. Yeah. yeah. The product wouldn't work. Um, and so it's one of these things where you just have to sometimes, it's like the benchmarks and the product category norms that you need to look to.
0: Yeah. And I think that's something that PMs struggle with being able to do both, being able to be like a strong visionary product leader and being able to devise and execute on effective hypotheses. Right. Those two skill sets are needed at different times in the org. To differing degrees like I think you always need both but like predominantly you need this like intuition based one I'll say intuition I hate using that term sure. but whatever um, the intuition based PM is like a, the the staple of the early or even like product founder is the staple of the early company and uh, the data based PM is a staple of like the really established company, but like you still have to use intuition as a database PM and you still have to like use data as a intuition based PM and like figure out like, am I actually growing at the right rate that I need to be growing and like things like that. So I think being able to like hone in on both of those skills and, and also like not feeling cut off from making intuition based decisions because data is supposed to help you move faster. And if you are slowing down to do more and more and more analysis instead of moving faster with the data that you have, helping you make better decisions, you're using data wrong. It's very easy to get slogged by this like analysis paralysis and desire to have like exactly the right thing and like look at all the data before you test something or blah, 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 blah. No, move faster. Data should help you move faster. So one of the things that I think we've hinted at a little bit earlier and kind of danced around uh, is this kind of very rosy picture that Tungus paints about data. And I... I found that one of the places that he illustrated that is that if you if you have data, then you don't have ego mm. and you can make decisions in an egoless way. Uh, and I find that to be completely untrue. OK. <laughs> <laughs> so when you have access to data, you can just as easily use it to amplify your ego. Sure. Like, it is not a cure all. Data is a magnifier. And if you want to do egoless development, you can do pretty egoless development with anecdotes. Like, you don't need data to be egoless. And if right. you want to do ego-driven development, you can arm yourself with data to back up your opinions. I want to do
1: ego-driven development. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> that sounds like basically me every day. Right. It's like Sandy in a room. Sandy in a room. <laughs> Making decisions.
0: <laughs> but, you like, you can use data to back up your opinions. And, like, as fallible humans, we do that. Because sure. we, look, we have this intense amount of confirmation bias. We're always looking for things to confirm our opinions. One of the things that I deal with here a lot at Yammer is that if, a metric moves in an unexpectedly dramatic way that's bad. PMS will often suggest, "Oh, something must be wrong with the system." <laughs> like, let's just check. And, you know, and sometimes something is wrong with the system, sure. right? Like, sure. let's check. Like, is is everything lined up properly? Did we get our enrollments like balanced correctly? Um, is everything up to speed? Like, are we is the data processing behind perhaps? Or like, did something break? Mm-hmm. Did we do it wrong? Uh, Or, you know, it could be due to random chance because we do have, I mean, p-values, especially uh, at some point he's like, we try to encourage people to accept a 0.2 p-value. Like a 0.2 p-value means that like roughly 20% of the time. The metric could have moved based on chance Mm -hmm. alone. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a really high p value to accept. But
1: But even again, depending on what you like, for me, like, I may not get anywhere near 20.
0: Exactly, exactly. So it's like, it's what it's directional. It's it's certainly directional and can help you if you have, like, if that's what you've got, that's fine. But like, in cases where the metric moved in a bad way, Mm -hmm. we'll be like, well, maybe that fell into the random chance part of the p value and we should rerun the test. Right. Uh, But if it moved, unexpectedly dramatically in a way that's good it's a win like look at how awesome our intuition was like yay us hashtag winning what
1: do you mean that sounds totally egoless Uh,
0: yeah (laughs) bias always exists like you have to be careful and you can't accept data as like this ever righteous arbiter of truth yeah that is... I,
1: I did appreciate it. He does talk a little bit about different biases in the book, but it was, like, a very short list. Mm-hmm. Um, and the examples were also, like, very short. Mm. Um, but I was like, at least they're At here. least, yeah. Lip service to like, bias. Yeah, yeah he,
0: he was, did talk a little bit about um, causation versus correlation, yeah. and... A couple things like that. I did appreciate that. Yeah. But then, I mean, he talks about, he says that data is the antidote to a toxic manner of deciding. That if you have data to back up your opinion, people won't get their feelings hurt. Yeah. Which is completely untrue. Like, people attach their identities to their decisions and their ideas. And if you quench that, even if you're quenching it with data, you can hurt people. And it's how you it's how you choose to disagree with people that will determine if they're hurt or not. It's not the tool with which you do it. Sure. Um, so if you're trying to help people, I have this note here, if you're trying to help people's emotions, if you're trying to keep people's emotions intact, invest in training them on methods of critique. It's way cheaper. (laughs) Like investing into it. Like if you were building a data driven org in order to help people like feel better about each other's decisions, Mm -hmm. like that's a worthless endeavor on your part. Like there are way better ways to make people feel better. Sure.
1: So one thing that you just hinted at a little bit, which um, wasn't mentioned, was the idea of data as, like, a warning sign. And he never talked about that. He never talked about, like, how data can basically be this tool that can help you see problems. Hmm. And so, like, for me, I know that, like, it's only because I collect certain amounts of data that I've found certain, like, big problems. Hmm. Um, And to me, that was, like, a pretty basic, like, this is one, like, huge benefit of, like, Mm -hmm. being, like... On top of your data mm-hmm. that it's not really related to like winning with data but i mean at the same time it's related
0: to not losing
1: yeah yeah it's like but like i've had like several <laughs> instances where like there was this one day um so quib what happens is the subject um lines are determined based off of the top ranking story out of your personalized email digest mm. And there was this one link on Quib that was basically everybody's top story of the Mm -hmm, day. mm -hmm. And the title literally had the word spam in it. (sighs) And so everybody got this email (laughs) that had spam in the subject line. (laughs) And I was like looking at, and I was like, what's going on with Quib? I was like, where are all the people? Like, what's Mm -hmm. going on? And then it wasn't until I looked and I was like, oh, I was like, the word spam is literally in the mm-hmm. subject line. Like, of mm-hmm. course, everybody's email is going to turn that away. Hmm. Um, and that's just, like, a very obvious example. But um, that was something that, like, I wouldn't have seen that unless I had set up um, a way to track and understand and see that type of um, those interactions yeah. that users were having.
0: And So that's an excellent example of identifying, like, a product bug, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there are related, like, technical bugs mm-hmm. as well that you only get through tracking metrics yep. and setting up. So there's, like, yep. we have a completely different set of data stores that is just around alerting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we collect a lot more data for alerting than we do for analysis. And sure. they're like really completely different systems. And the alerting systems are, uh, they're much higher volume. Right. And so we don't store everything from that uh, for a number of reasons. There's also a lot of, like, compliance around, like, not say, like yep. storing certain PII and things like that. And so, a lot of our PII is personally identifiable information. So there's, Yammer is a highly compliant uh, company for a lot of different regulations, and so we have um, a lot of things that we can't store, but. More to the point, there's a, so much more data that we collect on the engineering side that mm-hmm. sets up alerts and says, hey, you know, this email is right. slowed down or, like, message sending time has, like, gone up by 5%, and that's going to, like, add more load on the databases and could crash something and, like, fix it now, fix it now, fix it now. Um, and so that is something that he also didn't really dig into is, like, yeah. the how this, like, keeps your, your company going. Like on the
1: rails, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, which I was kind of like, oh, that's... And, like, I expected, again, like, I kind of expected... It to at least be, like, touched on a little bit, but there was no mention of it at all that I saw.
0: No, I didn't see it either. Yeah, uh, yeah it's definitely glaring. I, guess I want to go back really quickly to something that we talked about at the very beginning around ways to create a data-driven company. Like, if you're in a company that's not data-driven, like what you can do. Sure. So, again, he has this chapter called Five Steps. Blah blah blah. I'll create a data. What are
1: the five steps? Anyway? I could not find them. He
0: he lists right. three cultural shifts. He's like, first you start using data to decide, and then teams collect the best ideas from everyone in the room because anyone can pose something that, that they drive with data, mm-hmm. and then the third cultural shift is data gives you surprises, and surprises drive new ways of thinking. Right. I'm like, yeah, that's like that's all like once you're already a data-driven company and you start using data to decide. Anyway, so I wanted to like just highlight some things again. This this is how I would right. recommend this chapter be written. Right. Um, So I think that the first and biggest step is investing in the infrastructure. And that has to come top down. It's a very expensive thing. You have to hire people with the expertise. You have to invest. I mean, the the people are much more expensive than the systems themselves. There's a lot of work you have to build into storing the data and building whatever aggregation systems on top of that that allow you to query it. And that's uh, very expensive. So you have to start there. And then you have to do a lot of work. And he talks about it being top, like bottoms up data literacy but i really think it's top down like you have to do a lot of work to instantiate this in the org it comes from a lot of share outs yeah. a lot of perhaps lectures lunch and learns brown bags yeah. uh,
1: and i and i feel like again i just kind of want to like interrupt a little bit because i think that that's not necessarily the like again for me i was able to accomplish that by using a bunch of tools
0: uh, interesting right? okay so so you're saying that infra- you don't need to build the infrastructure first
1: uh, I or mean, you don't you even need the literacy. Uh, you shouldn't build the infrastructure. I mean, again, from like my scale, right, where you're like starting very small. I think it depends on what starting point you're talking about.
0: That's a good point. Yeah. So,
1: like in my case, like I use so many of these like third-party SaaS analytics products, um, and I have like a good enough custom dashboard, and like I have good enough custom reporting that I've been able to mash those together to do what I need. And he speaks in the book about without like, Looker, without Looker, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, He speaks in the book about, like, stage one is, like, you go to the engineer and, like, pull stuff from Mm -hmm. them. And step two is you, like, mash some other services to meet your need. Mm -hmm. And then step three is you start building it yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I think, yeah, it's just interesting to think about how and when and why. I think step one and step two are definitely, like, those steps need to happen and should happen. Mm -hmm. I don't think your first step should be to, like, build... The data structure that will define oh, and yeah. your whole like through the life of your company. Right. Per um, your
0: earlier points, you would your company would not survive the process yeah. of creating this because yeah. you wouldn't be building your product. Yeah. I guess I'm talking about a point that's like post-product market fit and you are, I mean, maybe at like the A to B range of company size and Of oh, raising money. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Series yeah. A, Series B. Yeah,
0: yeah. sure. Um. So, yeah, so, like, building the infra Or, like, getting the infra yeah. And, again, just, so, just like, one
1: little side note mm-hmm. Like, I know many companies that have raised more than a Series B And still have, like, none of this sh- And it's just, like, fucking duct tape Like, the whole back end is just, like Like, big companies that I cannot mention But, like, lots and lots of companies Get really, really far On, like Gum and spit and like, jankiness just kind of all coupled together. Um, like getting to this point is uh, is I think often a lot later than people assume.
0: I guess would you say that people have a data team at that point, or like a person or or point? two at the point where they like still the duct tape and and spit and gum stage. Uh yeah. They're still gonna have like a, have d- a data, data team. team. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I think it's really important for the person or people in the org to have institutional backing from higher up that lets them push back against people. So It's really important to have your data team, be that one or five people or however many people you have, empowered within the org to push back against these requests. And this is something that Tungus talks about, is that like you'll always have more requests for data than you'll have people serving those requests. Um, and I've seen time and time again, people come to a a member of the data team, myself included, like I'm, I've definitely done this where you come with a question and it's not the right question because it's just like the thing that you thought to ask that you're thinking might help you make a decision. But really what you want the data person to be able to do is say, that's the wrong question. I'm not going to spend my time answering that. What is it you actually want to make a decision based on? And then I'll figure out what the right question is to even ask. So there's like a lot of pushback you need to enable the data people to be able to do. Um, and a lot of times it's easy to hire people who will just say, oh, that's the, the question you asked. So here, I'm going to give you the data you asked for, and that will be your answer. And then you end up these like really long rabbit holes where you go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it takes a bunch of your analysts' time. Uh, and they're not making the best use of the data because they're they're the ones who need to be able to tell people like no you shouldn't ask that you should ask this other thing so it's like one level of pushback then there's another a whole other category of pushback that this team should be empowered to do which is saying I'm going to quarter off like 30% of my time to do exploratory things and, like, I have this much time in my week to answer questions, and you're always going to have more questions than I have time for, and that's okay. Here, you probably help me, you know, like, we'll, we'll prioritize together, perhaps, or you can prioritize for yourself, and then I'll get as many of those knocked off as I can, and then I'm going to, like, protect this amount of time in my schedule to do exploratory analysis, to, like, be looking at churn predictors, to... Um, like identify models for growth that maybe we hadn't thought about that to be able to hone in on core metrics that really affect users early behavior and things like that. And is that the structure at Yammer? Uh, It is now. Uh, We don't have exactly like a percent of time Mm -hmm. because we have a very well staffed analyst team. And then we also have a really highly educated populace that is like enabled and empowered to ask our own questions. So if we have like piddly questions, we can just like refer back to our SQL and pull something out. but I've seen this, um, like Asana had to do a lot of work to like keep a lot of people at bay and make sure that they had enough time mm-hmm. in their week to, to do exploratory work. Sure. Um, it's very difficult to do because it feels especially when it's like the CEO or the right. CFO or you know people who are like really high up and so these individual contributors need to have permission within the org to push back all the way up.
1: Um. So one of the things that you mentioned this one quote earlier in that point about um, data encourages experimentation and surprises. Mm. With the data from the experiment, employees can enact the change they wish to see in their business. And I felt that that was a little, again, it was a little too like laissez faire and Mm. a little potentially like damaging. Because I was like, oh, is that what people believe then is the value of data then everyone goes off into their own little micro corner and like makes random decisions and builds random experiments and releases them i'm like that sounds like a cluster (laughs) (laughs) and not a data cluster not a data cluster (laughs) another kind of cluster um and i was just like and there's no like like yes But there needs to be some overarching structure to all of that. And, like, Mm -hmm. he doesn't mention that at all. And he's just like, everybody can go, like, make random experiments. It'll be amazing. Like, rainbows and unicorns. And I was just like, ah. And there's no mention of, like, okay, but how do you... Like, even the idea of releasing multiple experiments at the same time, like, that's not even mentioned. And I'm just like, Mm. uh. And so that, to me, was... Because you had the same quote on your previous point. But that was, to me, I was just like, oh, my God, that sounds like... I, I don't know if you can tell from like my voice right now but I'm like rubbing my temples. It's like um it's just stressful to think about, like, that as being... Because I think that's also potentially one of the problems with this idea of, like, data. And, like, everyone's in power and everyone can be their own, like, force for good. And everyone has, like, ownership and authority to... And, like, they can be autonomous in the organization and blah, blah, blah. And that sort of goes that same route of, yeah. like, reinforcing that, which I think can be very
0: damaging. Yes. <laughs> um, it's, it's such a rosy book. Yeah. For such an, like, ambiguous topic. Yeah. To that... one of the things that I started listing out here is he never talks about the downsides of this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been thinking a lot lately about specifically the downsides of A-B testing. Sure. First of all, it takes longer to build an experiment than to just ship something. Mm. Like if you imagine that there's an experience that you want to test, if you just built that experience and shipped it, that's one amount of work. And then if you add on top of it, instrumentation for testing, that's extra work. Consider that. Second of all, while an experiment is running on the sign-up flow, for example, you generally can't run any other experiments on the sign-up flow. So like, you lock down, or you, in, in addition to not being able to run experiments on that, you can't change or fix things or adjust stuff that you wouldn't even want to experiment. Mm-hmm. So effectively, you lock down areas of your product when you're experimenting on them. Uh, yeah,
1: which I've like had instances. I've had like problems there where like I released an experiment and then like something changed and I had to change it and then I basically had to throw away all of the data up until that point yeah. and restart because like the change was something that had to be done. So I was like, oh, my test like wasn't done yet. So it was like, uh, it wasn't something that I could have predicted it would have changed, um, but it was still just like obnoxious. And like, yeah, I'm clearly have felt that as a a downside. Or
0: even like engineers can't refactor code if they're trying to like make something more uniform and like componentize something across the product. Well, you can't make this a component because it's under an AB experiment right now and you would break that. Mm -hmm. So that can slow down your engineering team a lot. And also keeping track of all the different experiments and like what you can and can't touch can slow down your team a lot. Um, it can create a confusion with your engineers around what's expected behavior versus what's a bug. It's a very common thing. It becomes very difficult when you have a large company uh, full of engineers testing various things that triaging bugs is really difficult because anyone who's looking at this bug report has to track down like any engineer that might be running an experiment. Like, is this supposed to happen? Like, this light box isn't popping up anymore. Someone's reporting that as a bug. Oh, wait, this is something we're experimenting turning off. So it, can, so it can create confusion for your engineering team around, like, what is expected behavior versus what's a bug. Like, we have offices in multiple locations, people triaging bugs as they are, like, basically tasked to them to do so. And that's, like, just more information overload in the org. Uh, it requires a lot of time from your analytics team and your product team to determine, like, what happened and why. It's never a clean cut. Like, you don't know. Like, if you knew your users well enough that it would, you would always know what the metrics would do, then why were you testing? Right. Right? Like, you're expecting surprises. And so since you're expecting surprises, it takes time to dig into those surprises and build narratives around them. It can be wrong. Like, you can get errors in your data and, ran, like, random change, especially if you're looking at p-values that are, like, pretty high. Um, and that's, like, a cost that you incur with experimentation is, like, you don't necessarily 100% know. Maybe, like, it feels like you do, but it can be wrong, mm-hmm. and then you have to go figure out what happened. And then and this is the big one that people overlook a lot is mm-hmm. that When you're experimenting, you have two different experiences in the product, and when you decide which one wins, you turn that one up to 100, you make that one the default experience. But then you have to go and remove the code for the other side of the experience. And that part of cleanup doesn't always happen really well. It's not always done correctly. A lot of times the team has been disbanded already before that's like happened. It's, it's p- less glamorous sometimes. There are parts of an experience, like maybe you're, you're testing a new experience against an old one, the new one wins. Well, the old experience might actually like have bits of code scattered throughout lots of different parts of the code base. You, it's like tied to other things and it just becomes like a little bit messy to clean it up. And so it's just really important to remember that like experimentation is not free when you're building it. Yeah. Sounds great on paper. Yeah. It
1: does. But, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. I think a lot of people don't think about a lot of the downsides. And it's true that oftentimes if you're able to have, like, a really great win, um, then that bump is probably worth the work involved. Yeah in addition to the the results in the product but they only think about the changes in the product not what it actually means for the team post decision yeah
0: yeah and sometimes it's better to just ship a thing yeah and not build out all this instrumentation yeah so
1: do you guys have i'm curious just like a random number if you can throw one out around how many experiments you run that yield a success and a change
0: yeah i definitely can so um we're not private about this at all we probably ship about 50% of our experiments.
1: Oh, really? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, So I'm used to hearing a number of like 1 out of ten.
0: One out of 10 ships? Should be
1: shipped, yeah. So then the argument would be from like yeah from my perspective would be that you're
0: not testing enough mm. and you're not being risky enough not with your being tests. risky enough yeah i think it is different in enterprise environments cuz mm-hmm. this, this is a number i've heard in other enterprise places where oh, okay,
1: interesting. it's just yeah this number is mostly like consumer
0: yeah there's just it's slightly different when you're thinking about working with users like livelihoods right
1: okay um so the final point that i have is it's not really a point that I have a strong opinion about. It's just something that I've seen um, in the world of data science recently and data at startups and data um, tools. And it's something that I kind of wanted to get your perspective on. And so I just thought it would be fun to talk about here. But um, one of the ideas that um, Tom talks about is how, people at your company should become more data literate. Mm-hmm. And there's two arguments. Uh, it's actually So there's one argument is the people on your team should become more data literate. They should understand how to run SQL queries. They should understand like what statistical significance is mm-hmm. and how to choose tests that can get there, blah, blah, blah. The other side of the coin, um, so what's interesting also with this is that I know... Um, to startup CEOs who are working on both either side of this coin. Hmm. And they're both smart, and I really uh, respect both of them, and they're doing interesting things. Um, so the other side of the coin is that we actually just need one further level of abstraction. Hmm. And you need to make basically all of these tools and all of the data sources talk to each other such that a quote-unquote layperson can actually look at this other tool that's, you know, further up the stack. And they don't actually need to have any, they don't have to go through, you know, two weeks of training at Mm. Facebook. They Mm -hmm. don't have to like take a class on data science principles. Mm. They can just use a tool um, that will, you know, in, in like, again, with my case, it would be like, okay, it's going to pull in panel, Optimizely, chart mm. 10-Grid, Intercom, like custom metrics, like everything into one thing mm-hmm. and makes them all really easy for me to just like query and get responses from. So that's a question is like, what, like, do you have a perspective on which one is be- quote unquote better or...
0: Uh, I think eventually the more abstract one will be better, but I don't think we're anywhere near that right now in terms of like the actual function in the tooling. Um, and again so having You mean like
1: the capacity of things like Looker?
0: Uh basically, yeah. Okay. So I think like Looker is supposed to be this like very easy thing for anyone to use, which like SQL was supposed to be this really easy thing for anyone to use, mm-hmm. right? Like your grandma was supposed to be able to like write SQL sure. um, when it was originally um, d- designed. But again, so I've, I've worked in an environment with Looker, like all hooked up and everything, and still people were uncomfortable and they right. like, didn't use it. I think we're still at a time where you do need to understand principles of data science. I think you do need to understand how to run a SQL query. And I, I don't know how much you need to know that. Sure. Um, I I think you need, like, some level of comfort, but much, 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 much more important than any of that kind of data literacy is the data literacy of your own dialect. Like, what is it like in your org? What are the tables called in your org? Mm -hmm. How do you look up things? Like, what do you, what is is a user interaction called? Mm -hmm. Right? Um, And that stuff is really easy to, to skip over. Because
1: he talks about the, like, lex- lexicon? Yeah,
0: exactly. The lexicon, the, like, the the dictionary that you devise for, like, your company's metrics, like, why they're called that and all those things. And I think that's actually the most important thing from this... It's one of the most important things from this book, is making sure that that's spread throughout the org. So, let's, uh, conclude? Wrap up? Perspectives? Yes, yes.
1: Um, yeah, I think I am... I did like the book, though. At the, at the end of the day, I'm still sort of like, okay, I did enjoy the book. I thought it explored a lot of different topics. I'm slightly confused as to who it's for. It's clearly not for me. It's clearly not for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm a little unsure about the audience question. Um, I also am hopeful that this is just sort of like an introductory um setting the baseline book and there'll be a couple others that dive into some of the subcategories a little bit more um and otherwise because i mean like tom's like his blog is really great and he writes he's like he's really good at this stuff and he understands this topic really really well he shares a lot about this topic and I, I guess maybe because of that, I had really high expectations. Yep. Um, and so while I in no way, like, doubt the ability or capacity, obviously, of, like, someone who's built one of these tools, Frank, and, like, Tom, like, a person who has, like, has a lot of experience at Google and has built tools for Redpoint around this. mm mm-hmm. um, to do a, like a bang up job. But in this case it was, um, for me anyway, it was just a little too high level for what I
0: was hoping. Yeah. Yeah. I have to agree. I think, uh, I also concur with the high expectations point Mm -hmm. because I also really do like the blog and I had much higher expectations and I feel like I was Severely let down. I would say I I, I actually disliked the book oh, because of that. Okay. Uh, I just kept waiting, and I was like, page turn, page <laughs> turn, page turn, page turn. When is there going to be something like really actionable, really valuable? Sure. Um, and I felt like there were actionable and valuable things, but not related to data. Mm-hmm. Like there were interesting things about how to set your sales team's quotas. Right. Oh, how to like pitch your company at a demo day or don't hire. Don't
1: follow those instructions.
0: Don't follow those instructions. Different (laughs) instructions to follow. Okay. Well, if, and when I'll (laughs) touch base with you, but I I honestly, like I have it in my mind stacked away as like, if, and when I have a company and I need to figure out how to do like hiring or sales quotas, I mean, and then again, maybe I would just like get books on those. I don't know that I'm going to use much of this in any capacity ever. And uh, other than, like, really investing in making sure that my org has good cross-sectional data literacy, Mm -hmm. other than that, I I don't really think there's anything I'm going to take away from this book. And I can't figure out who I would recommend it for. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again to our earlier points there. Yeah. So on the pony scale, I don't know, I'm like a two or one oh, point five, maybe
1: two, oh, one and a half pony. Yeah. But
0: I think our pony scale. So I just have to, I have to comment on our pony scale. Okay. Like we do a lot of work in advance in how like picking out the right book for the topic
1: yeah this book was really hard to get to it, find yeah. a book on this topic yeah
0: it was and we, we looked at a, a number of ones that didn't even make the pony scale cut
1: yeah
0: we didn't even read them you yeah. know and so like this this book is on the it's on the scale like we we decided that this was valuable enough to like discuss these topics and it prompted a number of conversations that i thought were valuable um again like a lot of this is around us like diving into how we've seen these things play out in different orgs. And, like, you've seen a really different set of things than I have when Mm -hmm. it comes to how to use data in a a tech environment. Um, And so I think that was really valuable. Uh, I don't know that I would recommend the book for anyone, though. Sure.
1: Yeah, I guess I would maybe give it... So, again, I'm thinking of literally this one person that I know where the co-founders came to them and was like, make us (laughs) data-driven. And I think this book would actually be... um, Good for that person yeah um so i'm gonna say i'm gonna give i feel like i want to give it a three a three because i think like for that person it would actually be beneficial i think if this person took this book and actually gave it to a copy to each of the founders um it would probably allow them to have like further conversations with them about exactly what they mean by that whereas now they're sort of just like uh tasked with this like yeah ginormous like massive on like malleable muddy ball of a goal like become data driven um and this i think would help that person to get some actual understanding around what that means
0: to um to the founders yeah so again a good defensive book yeah for people who are already in the space and need to like help people not in the space kind of figure it out
1: uh, I mean, it's not that they're in the space. I mean, these are again, these are founders of like a like a pretty prestigious startup.
0: <laughs> right, but I'm saying like um, someone who's like more in the know needs to help someone else sure, figure out like how to. less in the know. Yeah, yeah but like, it's a defensive like here. Yeah. Like read this book, and then we'll have like a more informed yeah. conversation. Conversation, yeah, because
1: you have established it'll help you establish a baseline. Yeah, um, and also see some examples that from like companies that you recognize with examples that are like at the same scale and scope of yeah. what you were expecting to do at your own company. Yeah.
0: I can see that. Sticking with my two. Sticking with the two. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Thomas. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but overall, uh, I'm still glad we read it. I hope that maybe... uh, I think it did allow us to have an interesting conversation about um, data and metrics and all that kind of stuff. Um, It'll be interesting to see if um, we'll eventually come up with another book that Mm -hmm. maybe is a little bit better. And I'm sure... It'll spur. I mean, this is a huge topic,
0: so yeah, I'm sure if yeah. we found
1: another one that was better, we could read it as well and have a completely different conversation.
0: Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. This is the Clearly Product Book Club Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Clearly Product. And
1: I am Sandy McPherson, founder at Quib. You can find me on Twitter at Sandy Mac,
0: S-A-N-D-I-M-A-C. And I'm Anna Marie Clifton, Product Manager at Yammer. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at TweetAnnaMarie. Marie.